Hi guys, today I have a ver another very special guest with me, Hamid Abdel Samad. How are you, sir? Hi, uh, God. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, Charafna. Uh, I wanted to first uh, introduce you by mentioning some of your uh, books uh, that have been translated in uh, many, many languages. Uh, you've written many books. Let me just mention a few. My Farewell from Heaven, The Case Against Muhammad and Islamic Fascism, the third one of which I think is available in English. Uh, so first, I guess I wanted to uh, say that uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on because I saw several of your YouTube clips and I said, this is a guy who seems to have exactly the right values. So truly, truly pleasure to have you on. Let me mention before we start, and I'm, I will turn to Arabic here uh, because we need to address a very important point. So I'm switching to Arabic and then I'll translate. لازم نقرر على موضوع كثير مهم نعرف انه باللغه العربيه في لهجات كثار في ناس بيقولوا انه اللهجه اللبنانيه احلى وحده وغير ناس بيقولوا انه اللهجه المصريه احلى وحده شو بتقرر يا استاذ خليني اقول لك ان اللهجه المصريه هي الاصل لكن للانصاف وللحقيقه ما في اجمل من اللهجه اللبنانيه اه شكرا شكرا حبيبي let me translate what i just uh, asked uh, Hamid. I said that there is a big controversy in the Arabic language world in terms of which accent is the most beautiful one. Uh, and some people say that the Lebanese accent is the most beautiful one. Others say that the Egyptian one. And being the true diplomat that he is, he said that while the Egyptian uh, accent is the original, authentic one, uh, he will concede that the Lebanese one is very beautiful. So thank you for that diplomatic and charitable answer. So I thought we would start uh, first with uh, maybe a dark part of your history, and that is that because of all of your public writings, you've actually been designated via a death fatwa. Can you talk a bit about this? Well, I was having a lecture in Cairo uh, three years ago in summer 2013, and I was talking about uh, Islamic fascism. Um, I was talking about the Salafists and the Muslim Brothers and uh, political Islam. And I was just mentioning that um, Islamic fascism didn't start with the modern um, political Islam, uh, Islamic movement, but uh, it's rooted in the Islamic history since it started, um, since Prophet Muhammad himself, that this religion was based upon violence, that uh, the relation between religion and politics and religions and violence is rooted back then in the uh, in the emerging of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad with his biography has something to do with it. This obviously was um, annoying some people. The video of my lecture was going viral on uh, YouTube and causing a lot of controversies and a lot of discussions. Um, and some uh, scholars uh, from Al-Azhar University and from elsewhere were just like uh, talking in Egyptian TV and they decided that I should be killed for what I, I have said. Um, and this is how everything uh, got started and it didn't end there. So because we have also Islamists um, in Germany where um, I used to live and uh, they were very angry on uh, what I said, and especially after I published the book in German, especially after I published the book about Muhammad too, 
the case against Mohammed. Um, also from German Islamists, uh, the same death threats were uh, coming. And so you had to have, since the original death fatwa, uh, police protection, and do, do you still have it now, or has the threat subsided? Has the fatwa been uh, retracted? What What's the status of this whole issue? Yeah, the status of the whole issue is that uh, uh, it got worse because, uh, yes, I got police protection and the level of this protection was raising uh, month after month because of the new threats, because those threats are also are becoming concrete. It's not just like uh, some abstract idea that he should be killed, but there are some people who uh, obviously were thinking seriously about uh, implementing that and... Uh, it's it's getting tough uh, for me that uh, I cannot stay in the same place uh, long um, and I, I cannot go uh, uh, for shopping without having police uh, protection. Uh, every step, I cannot even fly alone. Whenever I'm flying, there are some uh, policemen like uh, accompanying uh, me. But still, it's, it's a tough life, but uh, I knew what I was doing. Incredible. I, I, I didn't know that it's going to be that bad, but still I knew um, it, um, it must have some, some price to live like this and to think like this and to be outspoken about what I think. Now, what's incredible is that, you know, stories like yours, stories like Ayan Hirsi Ali, going back, of course, to the late 80s with Salman Rushdie with the fatwa that was... Uh, uh, struck from uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, I think, at the time. Uh, of course, Geert Wilders, the Dutch parliamentarians, and many others. So all of these folks who, who are doing nothing other than exercising their supposed free freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of thought in the West are then imposed with these unbelievable burdens on their lives. And yet we hear, no, 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 but it's all peace, it's all tolerance. I mean, what is it going to take for people to realize that it's not all so rosy. I don't know. I mean, what else should happen in the Middle East and in the world so that people will figure out there is a correlation between the ideology of this religion and the way people think about this religion and all the mess we are having there and all the mess we are having in the West within the Muslim communities too. Um, I'm trying always to differentiate between the ideology and the people. And it's very important for me, um, criticizing an ideology or a religion doesn't mean that I'm defaming all the people believing in this religion. On the contrary, I take them seriously. And I think every human being who takes Muslims seriously must criticize Islam and must criticize this political ideology of Islam and the legal heritage of Islam because that's the core of the problem. I have no problem at all with the spiritual part of Islam, um, with the social dimension of Islam. Uh, on the contrary, I think they are very positive and productive and important for the coherence and uh, for uh, the peace in uh, these societies. But there are very um, fascistic sides of this uh, religion, which are the political side and the legal side and the social order, not the social dimension, but the social order. Um, the religion which is thinking that God is the lawmaker and not the human being. Uh, the religion which is thinking it's the last word of God which is coming to bring 
about a new world order, about um, a new uh, uh, society from A to Z regulated by uh, the laws of uh, Sharia. This is a problem. This is a problem for living together of Muslims and non-Muslims. This is a problem for Muslims themselves within their own family, the relation between man and woman, um, uh, the idea of violence in the name of God. All of this has to be addressed um, freely and honestly. And the cup that the Catholic Church was drinking from in the Middle Ages can ju cannot just surpass Muslims. <laughs> and go away, we have to drink from this cup, from this very bitter cup. We have to go through the painful process of enlightenment, the painful process of um, recognizing where the mistake lies, where everything started. Um, but we are living in a culture of honor, and a culture of shame, which is trying to push away any kind of criticism. It's living from an idealized past, idealized history, and doesn't want, because the present is obviously not that rosy. So we need something to long for, something to be proud of, and it's the past. So if somebody like me is coming and is digging into this past, and I say, look, it might not be that rosy as you think. There are also kind of mistakes in this history which are responsible for the misery of today. Think about it. Um, try to deconstruct this history. I'm not telling you that what I'm saying is the absolute truth. That's the difference between my book and the Quran. Mm -hmm. That my book is not the absolute truth. It's my point of view, and I have the right to put my point of view on the ground. And you can look at it. If you don't like it, leave it. If it is striking something in you, if it's moving something in you, go ahead, search by yourself, and try to deconstruct this history by yourself. You might figure out something else that I couldn't reach. And this is the maximum that a book can reach. It right. can bring people to think, or at, le at least it can irritate them. And I think it's a, a great achievement for a writer to irritate people. It's not in the first place to inform them or to serve them the truth on a golden plate, but to make them think, to animate them to think, or at least to irritate them. And well, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, this, by the way, is, and I want to come back to the issue of uh, the cultures of honor and shame in a second, but what you're saying is exactly the problem that we're seeing right now in uh, on campuses in the West with all of these new forms of political correctness relating to microaggressions and safe spaces. I'm not sure if you're familiar with these terms, but yeah, they, right? So, uh, so basically, if you're at a university where a speaker is going to come and discuss something that is contrary to your position, it doesn't have to be about Islam. It could be about uh, anything. It could be about feminism. Uh, it could be about uh, racial differences and crime rates. Uh, if that it could be about abortion, you're pro-abortion, whereas most people, most sort of progressive people are. Uh, I mean, you're against abortion. Most people are for for abortion. Any yeah. of these positions, if they challenge my position, well, then that makes me feel unsafe, and then you shouldn't speak. Which I mean, fundamentally, is against the whole 
purpose of having a university, right? I mean, if a university yeah. is nothing more than a bunch of people getting together to discuss and pat each other pat each other on the back on things that they agree with, then we're at a madrasa, right? We don't have to go to a university where we challenge one another. Uh, so this type of authoritarianism is something that is not only specific to discussions of Islam in the West, it's really become a cancerous, uh, well, well, cancer in the in the West. And I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm trying to speak about it just like you're trying to speak about these issues. Uh, but I worry just uh, two days ago, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a very sort of flamboyant provocateur who goes around campuses, you know, irritating people. And he was shut down by some students when he was trying to speak at DePaul University, right? I mean, how is that not an affront to freedom of speech, right? I mean, if you don't like what he says, don't come or organize another event where you uh, argue against his positions. But no, they feel that it is their freedom of speech to shut down mm -hmm. his freedom of speech. Yeah, this is very strange. I'm I'm very familiar uh, with all of this. <coughs> I um, I get um, this kind of harassment uh, not only uh, from the side of radical Muslims who don't want me to speak out, but also from the left, uh, the political left in in, in Europe. Uh, they um, they have a serious problem with criticism of religion. They don't have any problem with criticism of religion if it's uh, directed to Christianity. But when it comes to Islam, it becomes an issue of race all of a sudden that uh, they think they should protect Muslims. And I think this is somehow is the real racism. If you consider Muslims to be like children who are not capable of thinking, who are not capable of receiving criticism and answering to it, in normal manner, they think, no, 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 they are not so far yet. So don't push them to the edge. There's a term for and, this, by the way, excuse, excuse me for interrupting you. It's uh, yeah. the soft bigotry of lowered expectations, right? You, you lower exactly. the bar for Muslims, right? And as you said, that is racist. That's what racism is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, Muslims are not kind of a species which is uh, threatened to, to, to um, to, to end or not to exist anymore. We have enough Muslims and uh, we have also enough rational people, uh, uh, Muslims, who can listen, who can think. I mean, I'm having a YouTube channel. Um, until today, it was watched by 4 million Muslims. <laughs> 4 million people who are watching this and are responding to it. Um, they are tired of the old narrative. They are tired of the, the, the whole structure. Uh, the authoritarian structure, and they are longing for real debate and new inputs about the history of Islam. And I'm trying to offer them a way to think about it. Some are angry about it, but some are really happy that finally somebody is opening up all of these minefields and is discussing them freely, rationally, without hatred. Because You're doing I this in Arabic? Never, You're doing I'm it. doing that in Arabic, yes. It's called Sanduq al-Islam, the box of Islam. And I, uh, every week, every Monday, I am posting a new episode about a certain issue about the history of Islam and also about the modern situation in Islamic countries. So, but in Europe, especially in Europe, we have this serious problem, somehow in the United States too for other reasons. But in Europe, uh, especially in Germany, you have the problem of the German history, that people are thinking that we have done something horrible to the Jews, 
more than 70 years ago. And now we cannot afford to push a new minority uh, and to force them to live the way we think is right. And I think this is the wrong consequences from the German history and from the European history. What I understand from German history is like lack of freedom is bad. And the most important thing and the mother, the mother of all freedom is the freedom of speech. And the consequences from the German history should not be, we should be always nice to minority, but we should never allow anybody to attack our freedom. We should no, never allow anybody to silence our opinions. We should be always outspoken about the problems and we should not, uh, of course, we should not suppress any minority, but we should not allow things within a minority which are against our fundamentals of freedom. So this is how I think is the right consequence, not to put um, uh, an, a minority under uh, protection. Like uh, Europe would never have been Europe if it didn't went through this long history of criticism of religion, reformation, enlightenment, and in some parts of Europe even pushing religion away until the edge, until where it belongs as a private issue between somebody and his god or his goddess. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the issue that uh, I'm asking myself. Why can't you trust us to go through the same process like you? Why you want to end any kind of criticism of Islam so early? Because you want to get into political and social consensus so fast. And I think it's kind of coward to f get to this consensus so fast before finishing the debate, before getting into the depth of the discussion. So I, th I think, so I want to go back to the honor and shame uh, issue. But I think that it's more than just the fear of criticizing minorities. It's the fear of criticizing what they perceive to be brown minorities, even though, of course, Muslims can come of all shades and of all races. Somehow it is associated with a darker pigmentation. So you have sort of a double whammy. Not only are you attacking minorities, but you're attack these are not white folks, right? So it's yes. not the white male, the evil white male. So how dare you? Plus, you've got cultural relativism, right? Which is a form mm -hmm. of secular sort of religious dogma, right? We should yeah. never criticize the other. A true progressive only self-flagellates himself. Yeah. I am bad. I am evil. You know, I've done wrong, right? So the, my grandparents, the Nazis did bad things. And then you hit yourself, right? And so because of all of sort of these grotesque factors, it really incapacitates otherwise reasonable people from being able to turn their critical eye towards Islam. It, I mean, I, I see it, right? Because, I mean, I operate in academia, right? I am immersed amongst all sorts of very brilliant people by definition who become complete idiots when you address this issue. They are completely frozen. Frozen, yes. their neuronal activations in their brain no longer functions because they're not, they're not able to overcome some of these obstacles that they've been inculcated uh, with. Yeah. And so that's a yeah. real problem. But I want to go back to uh, the very briefly the culture of honor and shame. 
I discussed this uh, briefly with uh, Nikolai Senels, who's a Dutch, uh, not Dutch, a Danish uh, psychologist who's worked in the criminal system uh, among uh, Muslim and non-Muslim criminals. And he talks about the psychological differences between the Muslim mind and the non-Muslim mind. And he, he also points to the fact of the culture of honor and shame. The, the idea is that it's very, very contrary to your sense of self, if you come from the Middle East, to open up, even on a one-on-one -on -one with a therapist, about your weaknesses, right? I mean, the idea of going to see a therapist where I'm going to openly talk about my insecurities, my weaknesses, my sexual problems, never. I always have to save face. Now you extend this to the societal level, same issue. Yeah. I'm not gonna talk about the problems in the Middle East. It's the damn Jews that are controlling everything, right? So yeah. how do we get, so, and, and that's not necessarily a religious matter. That's a, also a cultural issue, right? The, the culture of honor and shame is not strictly rooted in religion. I mean, I know Jews who are from, from Arab countries, some of them in my family, who also suffer from this culture of honor and shame, where they could never, for example, apologize. Because to apologize is to weaken yourself. And therefore, yeah. you will stay in your position until death before you apologize, which is a profoundly unhealthy state of having healthy relationships. So how do we get around this issue, this honor and shame obstacle? By facing people with the reality, um, it is uh, very uncomfortable. And uh, there are two imageries that I'm using in my book to explain this situation. Um, uh, John Paul Sartre is uh, saying uh, something very interesting about uh, shame. You don't really feel shame until the other is emerging in your life. As long as you are alone, you don't really feel shame. So you feel the shame when the other is uh, catching you doing something that um, from his point of view, you are not supposed to do. So he's giving the example of somebody who is looking through the hole of a key of a door, watching people behind the door. He has no problem doing that unless somebody will come from his back and will discover that he's doing that. Then he's discovering his own shame in this uh, moment. And I think this is exactly what's happening with the Islamic culture, that as long as we were closing our borders and we are isolated from the world, there was no reason for shame at all. There is a big narrative saying that we are the best community that has been ever brought up to humanity. And we are la creme de la creme of culture and of moral and um, of societies. We are the best because we had no comparison. We, ha we had no other society to compare ourselves to. And with colonialism, I, I consider the arrival of Napoleon to Egypt to be the beginning of modern time and it is one of the most precious presents we ever had. Yes, colonialism has brought destruction to some countries, uh, exploitations, and every bad thing you can imagine. But it was also opening a chance to be faced with our own failure, with our own isolation. And um, that's my philosophy of looking at fate. It's not always the bad thing that happens to you that decides if you are going to be a good human being or not. But how you react to your fate, that's your chance to be God. That's your chance to create because you decide how you respond 
to the bad thing that happened to you. And the Islamic world didn't rise up from or raise up from this narcissistic wound of being colonialized by a more superior power after believing all of these years that we are the best and we are God's best friend. All of a sudden we figure out there is another culture which is uh, like uh, more progressive, much more stronger than us and has the power to colonialize us. Every other country that has been colonialized was trying to get over that, trying even to cooperate. Japan was colonized by the United States. Now Japan is one of the most important powers. Taiwan was colonized by China. Now Taiwan is uh, uh, and was colonized by Japan before that. But now Taiwan is cooperating with China and with Japan and is becoming like a world power and uh, a world economy. Um, Germany was colonized by <laughs> Soviet Union and the United States, but was trying to get rid of this hatred and try to uh, figure out how can we make a new start. But for us, as an Islamic culture, it's always difficult to because we believe we have some kind of uh, uh, political order that God has given us. We have to act like this. We have to control the world. We have to uh, create a new world order according to the laws of Islam. Islam didn't come to become a part of a society, not uh, and, and not a part of an unbeliever society. So those people now in Europe and the United States who are trying to Canada, Australia, to say like um, um, Islam and democracy, there is no um, contradiction. Islam and uh, uh, like constitutions, modern constitution, uh, uh, there are no con contradictions. They are thinking they are doing something good to the Muslims because they want to integrate them. But it's a serious problem to consider a Muslim and Islam always as a one unity which cannot be separated. It, it's not like this in reality, and it doesn't have to be like this. Only conservative Muslims and Western politicians right. are insisting on this uh, symbiosis. They're insisting that they cannot be separated. If you want to integrate Muslims, say, say something nice about Islam. Say that Islam and democracy um, um, are coping together. Um, say that Islam is the religion of peace. Well, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, who of course is uh, the front runner for the Democratic Party in the presidential election, I just retweeted one of her tweets from a few months ago where she said there is absolutely no link, none, zero, none between Islam and terrorism. So somebody who can actually make that statement in the real world, given the realities of the world, uh, it is a more profoundly idiotic and delusional statement than to say there is no such thing as gravity or the earth yeah. is truly flat, right? If a scientist yeah. got up and said, look, it is absolutely incorrect to argue that the earth is not flat. And I know I'm a physicist, the earth is flat. Well, people would mm. immediately send them to a psychiatric institute. But a presidential uh, front runner could get up and say there is absolutely no links, right? So it doesn't matter how much evidence she can be exposed to 
there is no link. And as you said, that's very harmful because most people are cognitively lazy. And so they will take that little tweet and say, well, look, Hillary Clinton is saying it. So of course, Islam is peace. There is no problem. It's, it must be just a few crazy folks doing really bad things. And of course, they don't represent Islam. And that's, yeah. that's ultimately hurting everybody. It's hurting yeah. uh, Muslims who are the first ones who suffer from this. And it's hurting everybody else. An honest discussion will certainly solve the problem. Look, the problem is going to be solved one way or another. It's either going to be solved today with a lot less blood or it's going to be solved tomorrow with a lot more blood. So it's really, yeah. it's, it's our choice to decide how it's going to happen. People are going to wake up. They're not going to be in a stupor forevermore. So what you and I are doing by discussing, by being free, by exercising our freedom is to simply warn people that, look, there's a really dark abyss that's coming in the future unless we sort of wake up, correct? Yes, absolutely. I've been always asking myself why all of these Western politicians having the urge to come up with such statements like Islam is the religion of peace or Islam has absolutely nothing to absolutely nothing to do with violence. I've heard it from Hillary Clinton, from Barack Obama, from Cameron, from, from Bush. Angela Merkel, from Bush even himself. <laughs> Funny enough. Um, and I was asking myself, why is it like this? And I came up with, uh, we have been discussing two reasons for that before, like the cultural relativism and the fear of the intellectuals and the politicians that they will put a minority down. Or, uh, But it's not only that. And it's not only the German history and the European history and the fear to suppress a minority. Um, it's also business. You should not forget that uh, the United States and Europe are uh, connected with Saudi Arabia, with uh, Turkey, with uh, Qatar, with the Arab world, the Islamic world, and they don't want them to get upset. And you know, like in these countries, people are having the tendency to feel um, assault, like assaulted very quickly, more than elsewhere in the world, I guess, especially presidents. If you look at Erdogan or if you look at Khomeini, it's, it's always a lot of trouble if you criticize one of them. So they try to um, please them by saying these statements. So this is one thing. And the other thing is lobbyism. Uh, we are having a very dangerous wave of lobbyism of political Islam taking place in Europe and in uh, North America. Uh, not only in the media that certain journalists who are having ties that we know with Saudi Arabia and with Qatar. and No, you, you, are, you are having also a, a country like Qatar controlling some newspapers and trying to uh, control some journalists within those newspapers to... Um, represent a certain certain ideas that they want them to represent and those newspapers were responsible to brush up the muslim brotherhood as a reformist movement as a, a democratic uh, movement and sell it to the world as such and many people are still believing this nonsense and you were um, by the way and i want to go back to your childhood in a second but you when you were in egypt you were born and raised in egypt you were at one point part of the muslim brotherhood correct Right. Yeah. Yes. I, I was like between the age of uh, 19 and 21. Uh, I was joining the group and I was very active. And uh, until in, in one uh, camp I, I was spending there, I figured out uh, this is uh, this is very dangerous to be with such a group 
which is selling itself as alternative to Mubarak as a dictator. So they want to create a new society. But what is the basis of this new society? It should be the individual. It should be the human being, that they believe in this human being, that they honor this human being. But there was one scene, one act that was taking place in this camp that made me neglect the whole idea and just like never again join this group or any other group. We were asked to walk in the desert. It was a very hot day. And they were giving each of us an orange so that I was assuming this will be our reward after walking so long time in the desert. So it's like paradise. I thought they are talking, giving some allegory uh, or metaphor of paradise. So we were walking in the desert. We were sweating, very thirsty, very hungry hours and after that the emir of the group so we were divided in group was saying us sit on your knees so we're sitting on our knees and he was saying peel the orange we were peeling the orange and then that guy was saying bury the fruit in the sand and eat what you have been peeling just the peeling of it that was that was very humiliating very, very humiliating. And I, I figured out in this moment, that's it. Uh, sad enough, I did what everybody else did. You know, this, that, this reminds me of a story. I don't, do you know uh, Tawfiq Hamid? Do you know who that is? He, he's, uh, no. He's a, he's a physician who I think now is in the United States who studied, I think, medicine in, uh, in Egypt and uh, was a member of uh, not... Uh, well, it was Jam uh, al Islamiyah, so I yeah. don't know if they're connected to the Muslim Brotherhood or not. And he tells, I mean, not a similar story to yours, but similar in the sense that there was a particular incident that sort of woke him up and said, "I'm out of this." Yeah. I think it was they. I hope I'm not getting the story wrong, but they they wanted to set up an operation where they sort of killed this innocent random policeman, and he just mm-hmm. couldn't understand why would we go and kill some guy who we don't know. This is in Egypt, right? It wasn't. Yeah. They weren't killing, you know, a kafir or anything, right? Uh, and so he decided he was out and he now speaks a lot against political Islam and so on. But let's go back to, so to your, so you were born in Egypt. Your father was an imam. So certainly uh, I, I have this, uh, this appellation, I call it the, the holy 3M of uh, apologia, like how you people apologize whenever somebody criticizes Islam and the three M represent three words that start with M. Uh, let me look for them here. Where are they? They're, uh, I'm looking for them. Well, misunderstanding, misinterpreted and mistranslated, right? Well, you don't speak yeah. Arabic. You can't understand what's in the Quran. Now you are somebody who uh, not only had a father as an Imam, but you were a, a Hafiz. Uh, maybe you could first explain to us what Hafiz means. Uh, and, so to give a sense of what it means to indoctrinate a child in the context of uh, that culture. Go ahead. Hafiz is somebody who uh, is memorizing the Quran by heart. And that's what I've been doing since the age of three. I've been memorizing Quran by heart until the age of 12 that I finished that. And um, I am familiar with all of these three M's that uh, <laughs> when... Uh, uh, when 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 a Western person is is uh, criticizing Islam, this is the first thing. Yeah. Have you ever read the Quran in Arabic? 
uh, no, then don't discuss with me. Or uh, you've got the wrong translation, or you misunderstood, or, or you are uh, taking the verse out of context. But حفظت حفظت القرآن بجامع الأزهر. If no, then you are a fake guy. Yeah. Right? So yeah. this is just I, to translate to people. Even yes. someone like Hamid, who's got all the right boxes, we can always find something to make him non-authentic. And so what I just said yes. in Arabic, did you yes. memorize the Quran in Al-Azhar University? If you say no to that, then clearly you are a fake, right? Yeah, but, well, my father did. <laughs> he, has, <laughs> he has this uh, this authority and I learned it from him. So uh, authentic. He, uh, he he was teaching other scholars who later became scholars. So. Um, and I think there is there is no book about Islam that need to be read that I haven't read already before the age of 16. So I've been reading all relevant book about uh, Islam, about Hadith, about interpretation. Um, and I was so much absorbed. I'm so, I was so much in into this uh, book. And um, I was so much in love also with this book. That's, that's, uh, that's the thing that, that made me also go the... Uh, that way, I uh, I still recognize the aesthetic part of the Quran and uh, the literal uh, dimension of this work. It's it's a, it's a very important book of its time. Uh, but I'm also having the ability to deconstruct it because I know it's so good, and I'm I'm familiar with all of that. And that's one of the things um, Salafists in the West are hating me so much because they cannot bring up these three things with me because if they talk about context... You're, I you're a nightmare, to... basically. You, you are yeah. their walking nightmare. And then I bring the context in uh, in seconds. I tell them, okay, Al-Tabari said this and Kortobi said this about this very specific verse and, okay, tell me your context. They, 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 they can't because they use these context stories to silence others who have no idea about the Quran. But then when they, when they have no other means with me, then I am the, for them, then the self-hating Muslim. Right, right. Or maybe somebody who is paid by the Mossad. Or they, they, they will find something. They will find something uh, other than just sitting and discussing with me rationally about uh, the, the, the issues. So I'm, I'm very familiar with all of these apologetics. And it's so sad because what a great chance. What a great chance to open up this hurdle, which is standing between us and civilization. It is a great hurdle and a great obstacle, and we can remove it without denying our identity, without, without even um, uh, finishing the religion, but putting the religion in its right place. And now here's the question. How do you, how do, you do that? Which I guess leads us to, to the issue of reformation. Because, look, uh, if you read the Quran honestly as you have, if you read the Hadith, if you read the Muhammad Sirah, uh, if you do a content analysis of how much you know problematic passages there are, well, it is filled with problematic passages. I mean, it's difficult to imagine a book that has more problematic passages. As a matter of fact, Bill Warner, whom I've had on my show, he's a former professor of physics who then, when he retired, decided to dedicate his, his uh, life to studying uh, the Quran and other Islamic texts, did a content analysis. So this is a formal scientific technique that you use when you are analyzing text. And so you could, you could look and see, you know, how often, 
how often are injunctions of hate and genocidal, you know, lust are mentioned? How often is peace mentioned? And so you don't have to sort of guess. You don't have to use the Hollywood actor Ben Affleck to tell us uh, what Islam is or isn't. We don't need to hear it from Hamid either. We could do. Yeah. We could turn the lens of science to answer any question that we want empirically, and the results are not very good, right? So then, how do we still? say, well, hey, we, we'd like to have uh, uh, people practice their religion, certainly in the West, but then take all those parts out. I mean, you'd have to come up with some magical doctrinal way where all of that stuff is magically abrogated or erased. How do you do that? Is it possible? Well, what I, what I am doing is basically two things. I'm trying to deconstruct the whole story of Islam from the beginning, um, I'm trying to deconstruct Quran, um, and uh, in in my YouTube channel, I'm trying to explain what are the sources of this book. I'm telling guys, forget the idea that some angel was coming from heaven and with a complete book and gave it to Muhammad, and Muhammad was revealing it to his people. This there is nothing, there is no such a thing like this. But let us look at the Quran as kind of a palimpsest, as a text over text over text, um, borrowing from other cultures, which doesn't make it poorer but richer, building upon other myths and other religions. And basically, exactly what I have done, together with some experts too, like we were reading a certain story in the Quran and asking, where is a similar story somewhere else so that we can figure out where the Islam borrowed this from, where Quran borrowed that from. So you'll find many, many sources and you'll be surprised. Like not only the Jewish and Christian texts and the uh, exegetic uh, uh, texts like Midrash and Midrash Rabbah, the Jewish texts. Also, you will find stories from Greek mythology, hidden stories from the Alexander romance, like a fictional story about Alexander, but because there was a text of it somewhere, like Quran was borrowing a story from it, uh, from the Zarathustra religion, uh, from the Avista, um, from the old Syriac poetry. You will always find different, and at the end you will figure out this is a nice mix of cultures at its time it was a literal achievement that needs to be honored and it has a spiritual power which is of course borrowing from other spiritual powers and that's what we can offer and say look you still can practice the spiritual part of Islam and you can be fulfilled with it and you can give up the political and the legal part of it because it's outdated, because now, it's harmful. So um, maybe at the time Muhammad introduced these things, it was creative enough and it was important for his context and for his time. But now we as human beings, and I always give this basic example. At the time of Muhammad, slavery was a normal thing was not something to punish. 
chopping the head of somebody was a normal thing. Uh, cutting, chopping the hand of somebody was a normal thing. Would you do that today? The normal Muslim was immediate, will immediately say, no, 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 no slavery, no chopping of heads, no chopping of hands. Okay, so why you think that the rest is okay? So maybe the rest, there are still other things that need to be put aside. So if it's perfect for all times, then it must be all of it. But now you are against slavery. Every human being with common sense would say slavery is a bad thing. But for Muhammad, it was not a bad thing. He has his own slaves. He was selling slaves. He was buying slaves. So these are things that just like think about it from this point of view. But what I want to reach with my criticism is not reforming the text of, his, of Quran itself. This is um, a waste of time. Right. You cannot reform a text which is considering itself to be the last word of God. Who are you? Who are you to change or to correct the word of God or even to come and say, I think God meant that. <laughs> That's what reformists... You cannot change a single letter. Yes, go ahead. Exactly. So so I'm, I'm giving up on that, that to try to reform the religion itself. I'm trying to reform the way people think about religion. I'm trying to offer narratives. I'm trying to show the human side of this religion, how these texts came together, um, what are the weak parts and what are the strong parts of these texts, why these text texts are dangerous. Most of the conflicts, and that's bring us to the story of ISIS and the rise of ISIS, it's also in um, among Muslim intellectuals and also uh, Western politicians. It's the same argument. It has nothing to do with Islam. There is nothing that had happened in the last years which is so coping with the text of Islam like ISIS. Right. If you take it step by step, they never do anything if it's not backed by authentic text. Well, they actually the they actually release a a ruling on each thing, right? They will, so they will, they will engage in the religious mechanisms by which they say, we're going to do action X and here are the religious grounds that we're standing on. So, I mean, you can't argue against that, right? But let me, let me play devil's advocate and, and introduce some pessimism to your otherwise very worthy cause. What you're trying to do is to appeal to people's reason, to, 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 to people's mental faculties that are very earthly to try to attack something that is in the sphere of the supernatural, right? So by definition, when I am a believer, I jump into the pool of faith and I reject my reason. I mean, that's the distinction between reason and faith. So how could you be using the tools of reason, which, I mean, I obviously agree with you that that's what should happen, but how could you say to somebody who would only identify in any religious text precisely because of its godly nature, its divine nature, its supernatural nature. And you're saying, no, 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 forget about all this. Look, there are some very real, earthly, non-supernatural ways that we could look at this. I mean, isn't it almost a contradiction in terms right from the start? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's very difficult. And I'm aware of that because um, it's also a medical issue. Uh, when you are criticizing 
the beliefs, the fundamental beliefs of someone. The, it's not the parts of his, uh, in, uh, uh, not the parts of reason in his brain, which are going to be activated first, but the defense mechanism. And he will go back to the pool of his faith to bathe there, to wash himself from everything you have said. But I'm not using only the strategy of arguing uh, reasonable, but I'm also using the satirical shock therapy that I'm taking certain stories from the Quran and many people criticize me for that and say you should stop that. You should just stuck to reason and you should leave the satire because even we are laughing about it, it hurts. Right. And I am very aware of that and it's never my intention to hurt the feelings of somebody. But it's still, I consider it to be my right to mock stories which are worth mocking, right. which are inviting me. So I will give you an example that I used the other day and it, it had consequences. It had serious consequences. I was discussing the story of uh, Muhammad's journey to heaven. That he was riding over uh, a horse, flying horse, and going to Jerusalem, and then going to... Uh, so in Jerusalem, he was praying with Moses and Jesus and Abraham, and he was the imam of them. So he was the most important prophet, so to say according to Islamic story. And then he was ascending to heaven and he was talking to God and he was knocking the doors of uh, all the seven heavens and every prophet was opening the door. Ah, who are you, Muhammad? And he was just their imam just a few minutes ago. And now they are surprised that he's here. Ah, so you are here. Um, so I was just telling basically, Muhammad was flying over a horse so why didn't he use this occasion to show a miracle to the people who have been always asking him, show us a miracle if you are God's messenger? So why didn't he just take the horse and make like some rounds around Mecca and just like uh, surprise? And then I was saying, if he was the Imam of Moses in Jerusalem and a few minutes ago he was going to heaven and Moses was surprised to him, him, like, what was the problem of Moses? Was he having, like, Alzheimer? Was he having, like, what kind of memory is that? that he? So I'm trying to deconstruct the Muslim story, the Islamic story, and funny. So what happened was a Saudi professor was taking exactly my argument and was telling the story with exactly the same words, even with the Egyptian humor. <laughs> and he got serious travels after that because he... he, he somebody was recording what he was saying and I think he got fired and he got like serious problems in Saudi Arabia because of that but this is showing you it works so if if you cannot reach them with reason with analysis so then you hit with satire and I think laughing even it hurts but it moves something it's like shaking the fundamentals well, that's, you, you, why, that's why dictators hate satire. But by the way, you're preaching to the converted because if you know anything about my work, I spent probably half my time engaging in satirical commentary, right? Uh, and I frankly think it's one of the most powerful tools. I completely agree with you because it's, a, it's, it's like the scalpel of a surgeon, right? It 
cuts through the bullshit, right? And that's why in, in, in there are many, many stories, both in Islam and in other contexts, where humor, where laughter, where joking, where satire are forbidden, precisely because it is such a powerful rhetorical tool. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I wanted to drill down now on one particular aspect of some contents, both in the Quran and the Hadith, and also in, in Islamic culture in general, of course, it has personal connotations to me because I am Lebanese Jewish, and that is the astonishing Jew hatred that is found in every fabric of uh, certainly Islamic societies, Middle Eastern societies. And of course, I lived it growing up in Lebanon, the most tolerant and progressive of Middle Eastern countries. And oftentimes, when Westerners first hear of these stories, they simply can't believe it. They don't. They don't understand that. Every possible fabric, the taxi driver speaking to you, the politician, the television show, uh, you know, the universities, everything is laden. The whole fabric of society is united in their Jew hatred. Just yesterday on my public Facebook page, there was a gentleman, uh, you can go and check it out, who started, he, he, wasn't, Muslim, he wasn't Muslim, he's a French Canadian guy. He started sending me some stuff that was really just genocidal Jew hatred. You fucking Jew, you Jew, Jew this, Jew that. Now, you had an incredible uh, YouTube clip where you talked about how, you know, the Islamic Jew hatred is really poisoning the, the, the human decency of otherwise good people. So maybe you could talk, give us kind of a summary of that and then link it because of your vast knowledge of the Islamic text to the original sources. Yes. Yes, I've, I've been making an episode uh, on my YouTube channel about, uh, in fact, two, uh, about Muhammad and the Jews and about we and the Jews. Um, it, it, it is kind of a chapter also in my book, Islamic Fascism. Um, and it's, it's really, when I see how much energy we are investing in the Islamic world in our Jew hatred, I tell myself, what a waste of resources. What a waste of energy. Like that we are so preoccupied, so obsessed with those people who are very few of them. Uh, we are uh, 1.5 billion and they are like 1.2 uh, or, or 12 million, yeah. like worldwide. If, if, we, if uh, we want to push it, it might be 16 million, but that's the, the upper limit. Yeah, yeah that's, it's still nothing like... And the books that you would find everywhere, everywhere in the Islamic world, on the streets, in the libraries, in good libraries, you will find uh, Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, and you will find uh, the falsified uh, protocols of the elders of uh, Zion. That the whole world have already recognized that the, these are false documents and it has been falsified for political reason and it has nothing to do with the Jews. It, it was not written by the Jews. Everybody knows that. But in the Arab world, you will they are still on the like best-selling list of all times. The fact that these protocols were translated into Arabic before Kant and Spinoza and uh, David Hume were translated into Arabic. Like, like our hunger for knowledge was going towards Jew hatred before to uh, philosophy or to modern science. That's a shame. That's a shame that we are still reading this stuff. And in fact, as you said, and as I said it in my clip, 
we are poisoning ourselves. We are poisoning young people who are, in fact, in their heart, very good and very friendly, but and they need their energy to uh, make something out of themselves. They need their energy to think what's going wrong in their own society. But that's how the issue is. Osama bin Laden was an architect. So he didn't build new buildings in the Islamic world. So to be uh, taken as a hero, he was destroying two buildings in the United States. And he was praised for that. He was not praised for, like, he didn't solve one single problem in the Islamic world. Not the housing problem, not the economy, not the political problem, nothing. He was just destroying two buildings. And he was taken as a hero for that. Because when the problems are so huge, then it's much easier to make somebody else responsible for these problems than starting by yourself by saying, okay, it's a great effort that I have to do, but I have to do it. No, it's much easier to say, the Jew did it. Uh, America is the reason. Uh, any, anybody, well, anybody, do, the teacher. Do you know the story of uh, the attacks by some sharks at Sharm el-Sheikh a few years ago? That I, I, I'm mentioning the story. Oh, in my, so let me, let I'm me, let me. I'm me. mentioning the story in my book, <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, there, it was 2010, yeah. 2010. There was a shark attack on the beaches of Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, uh, obviously, one tourist was hurt or even killed. And th there was a problem for tourism in Sharm el-Sheikh in this season. And instead of just like <laughs> considering this to be an accident like anything else or to find a way to uh, like shore the tourists up from those attacks, like it went like fire. They were saying... Israel was sending the shark to harm our tourism so that the tourists would go to Israel. And I didn't get the point because it's still the same sea. <laughs> so, so obviously tourists are not going to leave this beach and go to the, uh, the other on the other side. It's still the same sea. So if there is a shark there, most likely it could go there too. So, so, no, but the, but, Jew, the Jews are diabolical. They know how to control the, the, the movements of the sharks. I have to do that. And it has a long story. It has a long story, and that's what I was trying to, to, to explain in my book, Islamic Fascism, and in my clips. And of that, course, all, all that Jew, that Jew hatred is all perfectly clear and codified in the uh, Islamic text, correct? Exactly. And this is how Islam started. Islam started with a big admiration of Jews, uh, started by taking their traditions, just like copying it uh, somehow. Uh, the idea of prayers, the fasting, uh, the, the idea of cleaning, cleaning one's body, uh, forbidding of uh, pork, uh, pork uh, and many other rituals which are really, really identical. Uh, even the sound of prayers, the sound of reciting Quran, all of that was copied. Uh, obviously, Muhammad was admiring the Jews and was trying to convert them. He was even choosing Jerusalem to be the direction of the prayers before Mecca because he wanted to get closer to them. He even has stolen the word Sharia from them. <laughs> the word Sharia is just a literal translation of the word Halakha, the Jewish law. Halakha, and, and means way, the way to go. The path, so that's yeah. The path, yes. And that's, that's, that's Sharia too, the path. So, and then 
he expected them to accept his. Uh, so they didn't because they are anchored. They have their religion. They have their tradition. They don't need to be. We know from history it's quite difficult to convert Jews. <laughs> so they they can be converted from Jews to atheists, but they are still Jews. <laughs> you're look, you're looking at one. <laughs> so yeah. So uh, then he just started to change the his uh, strategy and there was some economical aspect of his dealing with Jews and a political aspect and identical something that has to do with identity so he wanted to sharpen the Muslim identity by uh, attacking the Jews by showing the, the discrepancy to the Jews so this one aspect that you can see in the Quran. Those people, they are falsifying their book. The Torah is not authentical anymore. They deleted all parts of the Torah which are saying that there will be a prophet called Muhammad. Right. So that's, that, that, that's how, how it started. The original that, conspiracy. The first conspiracy. Original conspiracy. Then he started, and this is a serious issue, because they were having the Ten Commandments, the Jews, and the, the clearest and the strongest one is you should not kill. You should not kill, period. And that was very annoying for him because he wanted to kill for political reasons. He wanted to regulate killing. And that's what Quran was doing, was bringing the exceptions. Right. Yes, the, the principle is right, you should not kill, but... And all of these butts, they are the mother of ISIS. <laughs> didn't Aisha, I, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Aisha say something like, oh, prophet of God, you seem to have an uncanny ability to always receive revelations whenever you need them? Yes, it was in the time that he was, um, he wanted to marry the wife of his son, or son-in-law, uh, in or adopt, adopted son. Uh, but uh, he couldn't because of two reasons. First of all, uh, people will look down to him that how come that she's already married to your son and you are uh, divorcing her from him to marry her. And it's still you, you wouldn't do that. And it's, it's your adopted son. And uh, you said in Quran that you are, one is not allowed to marry the uh, wife of his son. So first he had to get a verse from the Quran to tell him that uh, the adopted son is not a son. And the second one, that it's the order of God that uh, the woman he wants to marry will be divorced from her husband and to be married to Muhammad. And it, it, sound, it was smelling like a made-up verse. And Aisha, so young she was and, 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 and so innocent, she was just saying, like, I, I see that like, God is uh, corresponding to your lust <laughs> <laughs> in a very canny uh, way. So, um, yes, and that, that's exactly what was happening with the verse towards the Jews. At the beginning, he was praising the Jews very much as the people of the book and the people of knowledge. And he was going to uh, asking the people of Mecca, go and ask the knowledgeable people of Israel. That's well, what and, is written in the Quran. And that's the and then, I'm sorry, go ahead. And then later, because they were 
denying his message and because they didn't help him in his wars. Hence, and hence they, they are treacherous, hence they are yes, diabolical. They yeah, are. they didn't finance his wars. And then he started to wage wars against the Meccan uh, uh, merchants. Uh, uh, and he was living from the spoils of war. That, that was his job. And this is the fact. And the Muslim history is telling this story. We never know any other job of him after he became a prophet. He, he used to be a merchant before. But since he became a prophet, he didn't work. His friends and his followers didn't work. They were just going with him to rites and to, to, to uh, raids and to uh, uh, wars. And they were collecting the spoils and they were living from the spoils of war. That was his life. So in a year that he didn't win the war, so he was not winning all the time. So there were no spoils in this year. What should he do? Then he started to look to the Jewish tribes living there, having some fields, having some money, having some gold. Then he was inventing an excuse to dismiss them and to confiscate their um, property. That's basically what he was doing. It's an economical issue. He will invent any... any yalla jizya! Yalla jizya! Yalla jizya! Uh, for example, the, the second tribe that he was dismissing... Uh, uh, Banu al-Nadir he was going to borrow money from them he was going to borrow money from them so he was sitting with them leaning his uh, back to a wall and then all of a sudden he was standing up and going away and then he was saying uh, the angel Gabriel was coming to me and saying one Jew will go now to the uh, Rooftop. top of his yeah. house yeah. and will throw a stone to you and kill you. So this was like this hallucination or maybe invented story. You never know. It could be paranoia. It could be um, just a made-up story. This was an argument to dismiss the entire tribe right. and to take all their houses, houses and take all their fields. That's, he needed money. He needed money. And the Muslim uh, historiographs are telling these stories just like as I'm telling it to you now. Well, and the famous, there's the famous hadith, right, where, you know, uh, uh, it, won't, it won't end until there's the final battle where, be, be, you, you know... I was, the, I was coming to, the, I okay, was coming ahead, to that ahead. because I was making a, a comparison that uh, nobody's happy to hear at all. I understand that. But I'm still, I keep repeating this comparison. Muhammad's attitude towards the Jews and Hitler's attitude towards the Jews. It was similar in these two aspects. The idea of you should not kill this, this moral instance that killing is a bad thing. That, that was an obstacle on the road or in the path of Hitler for the absolute power that he was aspiring for. And he want, therefore he wanted to end this Jewish-Christian principle of forbidding the killing and he wanted to go back to the Nor Nordic myth with all its heroes and uh, all its battles and violence That's, he, he was reviving the Nordic myth uh, in uh, the political uh, discourse Muhammad did the same thing he was rejecting this commandment of thou shalt shall not kill and he was introducing 
and um, kill the unbelievers wherever you find them, and all of these aspects, because it was his uh, economical basis, he was living from that, and it was his political aspiration, he wanted to unite Arabia, and he wanted to control Arabia, and he could do that only by war. Another aspect in the comparison between Hitler and Muhammad is, considering the fight against the Jew to be an eternal and a holy uh, task that uh, uh, that Hitler was having the attitude that the renewal of the the renaissance of the German nation will not be completed until we finish the last Jewish soul until we end the last Jewish life and that's exactly what Muhammad was saying in this hadith that you referred to the day of judgment will not come before the Jew, the Muslims will fight against the Jews. The Jews will be hiding behind stones and trees. And the stone and the tree will speak and say, Oh Muslim, behind me there is a Jew, come and kill him. And by doing that, then it's the final judge, the final battle. And after that, the salvation will come. So salvation will come only after we kill the last Jew behind the last tree. That's the same the same spirit of Nazi Germany, the same spirit. Therefore, when I'm talking about Islamic fascism, I don't mean only ISIS and Jama'a Islamiyah and Osama bin Laden. I mean the guy who founded Islam itself, who was coming with this spirit and who implanted the seed of intolerance in the heart of Islam. Well, and you could find today uh, a montage of imams all saying unbelievable things about the Jews, where they literally will say exactly what you said, which is that to kill all the Jews is a supreme act of devotion, right? Yeah. That's the means by which you get closer to Allah. So, I mean, how could all of these imams who have immersed themselves by definition in a study of their religion all be getting it wrong, right? The three M's. They, they're Arabic. They're Islamic scholars. They're imams. They're standing up in front of the mosques and saying all this, but they're mistranslating, they're misinterpreting, they're miscontextualizing. So, I mean, it, it almost seems as if it's like a farcical, delusional world that we live in, right? It's a bizarre world where there is no yeah. amount of evidence that I can give you. Now, of course, yeah. not every Muslim is a, is a you know, Jew hater. Of course, I could pull out a million different guys who are perfectly lovely and kind and nice. That doesn't take away from all the things that you just said. So yes. how do we get over this obstacle? Yeah, by just shedding the light over these stories and showing how damaging they are for our identity and for our uh, communication with the rest of the world. Um, um, I don't think that we need even to interpret the Quran. I think the Salafists and the ISIS are just applying what's there. Those who need to interpret and to find a way out of the dilemma are the moderate Muslims and the liberal Muslims who are quite embarrassed to be faced. They don't have the courage to say, I would, I would like to leave this. It, it doesn't fit to me. It's, it's, it's harming. It's damaging. So they, this is human, uh, that they need to find some positive aspect. Therefore, they try to screw and squeeze each verse, they might get a drop of tolerance, a drop of something positive. 
and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you think that living together and peace um, and uh, good communication between human beings needs a legitimization by Muhammad and the Quran, you have to wait very long and the Salafists and the terrorists will come with much stronger arguments against your project. Therefore, we need to de-Islamize the whole thing of living together. We don't need the blessing of Jesus, Moses and Muhammad to live together. We need to think and we need to get rid of the obstacles which are standing in our way by keeping the religion as a private issue between the human being and his God and by concentrating on issues of daily life which are more important, which are more uh, valid, which has more impact on our life. I, I think those who are thinking that Islam could be a part of the solution are not only wasting them their times, but they are betraying the idea of reformation because they are moving in a vicious cycle. They cannot get out of it. The dog, the dog chasing its tail. The dog chasing its tail and it never ends because the, there is a problem in the program itself. So let me ask you this. I, that we could go on for hours, but let me end it on this note in a very practical question. So how do we take everything that you just said and deal with the current issue revolving around the refugee and you know hijra, the, the massive immigration that is happening across the West, where on the one hand, uh, we'd like to open our borders to people who are coming from difficult situations. Listen, I fled Lebanon. You fled wherever you, uh, Egypt, and here we are, hopefully contributing positively to society. So amongst the 25,000 Syrians that have been let into Canada recently and the 1 million that have been let in by Merkel, uh, there are tons of very good people, but there are tons of really nasty people. And by the way, the very nasty ones need not strictly be ISIS members or ISIS supporters. The fact that they come with that heritage, that cultural and religious heritage, is itself problematic because I know that when there is this many people coming from the Middle East of that particular faith, I can predict very easily. I don't need to be a fancy statistician to predict whether Jew hatred will increase in society or not, right? It doesn't take Einstein to calculate this one. No. So therefore, how do we navigate this very real issue, which is we want to maintain our humanity, which includes to be compassionate to those in need, and at the same time, recognizing that many of the people who come from those societies have values that are perfectly contrary to ours. How do we navigate through this, what seems to be like an impossible conundrum? It's, it's very difficult and, and it, it's getting worse. And it's getting worse uh, because um, it's not ending with those 1 million coming to Germany and those 25,000 coming to Canada and 25,000 coming to Australia and 10,000 coming to United States. And 11 people coming to Japan. <laughs> Japan accepted 11. 11 people. And it was a headline. <laughs> um, I am a Democrat. And I think every human being who uh, has fled his uh, country has a right to apply at least and get a fair chance to be accepted or not. This is another issue. But every society needs to calculate its capacities 
before getting into this adventure. And I was, I, I, I was belonging to those who criticized Chancellor Merkel for her attitude towards the refugee crisis um, by taking selfies with, uh, with some refugees by saying, we love you. This was a clear invitation that people, and I have nothing against refugees who are fleeing from wars and who want to have a better life. You and I uh, have taken the same path before. But this invitation was leading some Syrians who are having good jobs in Lebanon and in Egypt and in Jordan and in Turkey to sell their property and to take the first boat towards Germany to have a much better life. So maybe they were taking even a chance of a real war refugees who couldn't make it. And it's an illusion to think that by doing so, we are helping people. No, we are rewarding the smugglers who are taking a lot of money of those people. So we are rewarding only those people who can pay the ticket to reach to us. And it's not help. And it's not changing anything. It's like a, a slight drop on a hot stone because the number of refugees is increasing and the West doesn't have the capacity. And the chemistry of the society has to be calculated what could be possible. And we cannot afford to make our societies, which are open societies, um, a field of experiments, of social and political experiments that we cannot assume what the result will look like. We cannot make a prognosis. We don't know. And we have seen certain phenomena. Yes, the majority are peaceful and might find a way to live in peace. But it doesn't need the majority to disturb the society. A slight minority can keep the society scared all the time. We have seen it in Germany in the New Year's Eve that thousands of refugees, maybe not from Syria, but from North Africa, but they came with the wave, were harassing, sexually harassing women. Some women were raped, robbed, humiliated. Thousands of cases, thousands of cases. And this is for the first time things that we are used to know from the Tahrir Square and elsewhere in the Arab world, the mass harassment stories, are now coming. And this is, this is really a sad thing. This is a moment where I just like stand and say, we are exporting almost nothing as an Islamic culture to the world, except our diseases, except terrorism, sexual harassment, oppression of women, why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why is it that in no single Islamic country there is a real democracy? Where are Why? all the Jews in Islamic countries? What happened to them? What happened to them? Uh, how are the Christians living? I can tell you something. Yesterday, there was a very sad thing taking place in Egypt, in the south of Egypt. A Christian guy fell in love with a Muslim woman, which is elsewhere in the world a very normal thing. The other way would be okay, though, right? The other, Muslim, way, is okay. the other way is okay. Allah birid, Allah birid. 
راح يهديها للاسلام يعني هي ويل جايد هير ان الاسلام ذا اتس ا جود ثينج اند ذاتس ذاتس واي ان الاسلام لايك اتس نوت الاود ذات ا مسلم وومن ويل ماري ا كريستيان جاي بيكوز هي كود ميك هير كريستيان بات ا مسلم مان كان ماري ا كريستيان وومن بيكوز تشانسز ار جود ذات هي ويل ميك هير كريستيان اند مسلم اند ذا تشيلدرن ويل بي مسلم سو بريفلي اند ذاتس ذا ساد ثينج اند اتس شوينج اس where the problem is so the guy was in love with a woman obviously there was some kind of a sexual contact or something like this and people of the village knew about it and it's not the first time it's not the second time it's it's a weekly story so not isis not salafist normal muslims they were taking to the streets they were burning the house of the guy five other houses of his family and they were taking his mother and they were ripping the clothes out of her body and were dragging her naked into the street as a humiliation this happens all the time that whenever there is some slight problem between christians and muslims the christians are paying the price well this is what they this is what people don't understand about when they in the west when you say oh but jews and christians and muslims lived in peace and intolerant no at best the the people of the book right ahl uh, al they were tolerated right but you're never tolerated as an equal and you don't know when the people are going to come and take you into the street and and decapitate you right i mean we were yes. tolerated until we had to leave lebanon because we were going to be executed right exactly. I'll, i'll tell you a quick story actually it's related but to... uh, let me just yeah, 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 please, please, the main idea because what i wanted to say is just few days or like just slightly before that the al azhar sheikh was in vatican and he was talking about terrorism and the muslims in europe who become terrorists and he was saying they become terrorists in the west because they are climate change uh, are, due to climate change yeah yeah they are no <laughs> no because they are marginalized and because they are discriminated in europe and he wanted the european societies to open up to muslims not to discriminate them and everybody who lived in europe and lived in egypt knows that muslims in europe having much better life and they are more equal than christians in egypt so i'm asking myself why christians in egypt are not blowing buses or decapitated heads of people they are more oppressed than muslims in europe so if it's just a question of oppression these would be the first people to act those who has been Uh, 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 sent away from their houses by ISIS the yazidis who were like raped why didn't we hear of yazidis that cutting the heads of somebody or blowing buses away or blowing themselves away so is it really the oppression is it really the poverty is it really the political situation because in this sense christians in the islamic world has to be double terrorists because they are living the oppression double like the poverty and the oppression of the muslims above that too so it's not a question of the social structures this could be maybe accelerating the process of of radicalization but the key to radicalization is the ideology the political ideology of islam 
and the texts which are bleeding. The, the verses are bleeding violence. So how can't we just face this? How can after all of this, somebody like Hillary Clinton say that has absolutely nothing to do with Islam? There is no slight link. Uh, I wonder where those people are getting their information from. Who are the consultants of those people? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I think they should have you as a consultant. Uh, I was going to tell you a quick story and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, hopefully we'll try to find some optimistic way to end it. Uh, my Probably my first sort of recollection of something in my personal life related to Egypt was when I was a five-year-old child in Lebanon. I'm not sure if I've ever told the story publicly. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. Uh, and uh, Abdel Nasser had just died. Uh, so this is, I think, 1970, the, the uh, yes, former, the uh, former, former president, Egyptian president. Of president who was a big hero in the Arab world because he had sort of created this pan-Arabic movement, uh, sort of uniting all the Arabs. Uh, and when he died in uh, 1970, so I'm about uh, five and a half years old, very young boy, uh, I'm sitting in my house in, Le in Beirut, uh, and there is a procession, right? Muzaharat, right? There's this people coming out, typical sort of scene, rage, anger, kill. And they are lamenting, right? The death of this great Arabic leader. And the chants are about death to Jews. And so I am a five-year-old child who's sitting there in, in my balcony, really feel, feeling the fear, because I know I'm Jewish, and there's this mass of people coming that are supposedly, I'm Lebanese, they're Lebanese, and that are chanting this unbelievable stuff about the killing of Jews. Uh, so that was my first exposure to Egyptian-related Jew hatred. Uh, I thought that you'd find, I mean, I'm sure you've probably heard all the stories that whenever you want to insult someone, for example, a dictator is deposed, he's a Jew. Right? Yeah. Gaddafi was a Jew. Mubarak was a Jew. Uh, yes. Morsi is a Jew. ISIS are Jews, right? So yes. it literally is the lowest form or the most basal form of insult, right? Uh, yes. Can we. Um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm familiar with all of these things. It's like, just like. Uh, like you are eating nuts, like uh, let's eat nuts. Uh, it's like uh, and, and, and kill a Jew, like something like this. You know, like, uh, I love that you just said this because I'm going to be releasing a sad truth clip, which I call, it's a game I call Six Degrees of Kill the Jew. And the way the game works is that you, said, you just said, oh, we eat nuts and we kill Jews. So the game works as follows. How many backs and forths when two people meet does it take before we converge on kill the Jew. So if I say, hi, Ahmed, and you respond, let's kill, let's kill some Jews, that's only one degree of separation to get to kill the Jew. But by six degrees of separation, we will always converge on kill the Jew. So that's a new game that I will be releasing on my YouTube channel. And you've heard it authenticated right here by the son of an Al-Azhar Imam. So we know it is true. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been always hearing that uh, everything that the Jews has, has done it. The Jews are controlling Wall Street. They are co making Hollywood movies 
to uh, morally compromise our Egyptian or uh, uh, Islamic youth. They are basically controlling everything. And I was just answering this by converting it. Why is it the Jews? Why don't we control Wall Street for exchange? <laughs> Why don't we make movies to um, irritate uh, Jewish uh, young people? Why is it that this small minority is able to do all of these things? And no, it is the passivity. It is the passivity. It is the helplessness. If we will just recognize that where are the problems that we are not producing anything, that we are only exporting our diseases. We don't need the Jews. We will leave them in peace. The, the Jews don't care about us if we don't bomb their buses. Well, Basically can, like this. I can tell you personally that, look, as somebody who navigates both amongst uh, you know, J Jewish people and amongst non-Jews from the Middle East, uh, I could count a million times, I mean, endless times, innumerable times, where I was sitting and talking to people from those regions, them not knowing that I'm Jewish, and of course hearing the most unbelievable Hitlerian Jew hatred that you could imagine. I have never, and I mean, that's a strong statement, I have never sat amongst Jewish people where I've heard anybody say, oh, let's go and kill all Muslims, let's go kill all Arabs. As a matter of fact, if you said that, you would probably be punished. It would be something that people would look at you and say, wait, sorry, we don't do this kind of stuff. You don't talk, you're not allowed to, right? So it is against everything that I've ever been brought up to hate the Muslim or the Arab. It yeah. just doesn't happen. It, it wouldn't be polite conversation. But yet I've navigated because people don't know that I'm Jewish, right? I mean, growing up, I didn't have the same public, uh, you know, uh, people didn't know me as much as now necessarily. Let's, let's, let's. Let's get things straight in this while we are getting closer to an end. I can understand uh, a young Palestinian or Lebanese who lost his family or his house by an Israeli missile attack. This is something that we have to agree upon. There is a, a misery there. There is a great problem there that needs to be solved. And both Palestinians and Israelis need to do more to solve this. I can understand when such a person is now living in Gaza and having troubles, that he will have difficulties maybe to, um, to, to have some positive connotation towards Jews. I can understand some Lebanese guy who uh, lost his family or his house. What I can't understand is why a Moroccan in Berlin or a Pakistani in London um, or Indonesian in Amsterdam are agreeing on the same thing that Jews has to be exterminated, that they, they have to be killed, all of them. Where is that coming from? That's, it has nothing. They are not close to the conflict. They have no personal relation to this conflict. It is coming from the helplessness. People who are weak, they are relying on conspiracy theories. They need to fill the emptiness of their life with a big enemy, so that they themselves will feel that they are big enough. So if you are um, on the focus of Jews, all of the Jews, they, you and you, your 16 million people, you wake up in the morning, you, you brush your teeth and say, like, how can we annoy the Muslims today? How can we make them feel bad? Where is something like this? Because we don't see the individuals. We don't see the differences. Once we believe all the Muslims are terrorists. We lost the battle. 
when we believe all the Jews are evil. We lost the battles. And that's how I'm trying to delicately negotiate this issue of identity and our relation to ourselves through deconstructing our relations to the other. That's the game that we should be playing, how to understand ourselves through seeing how we look at others because what we say about you most likely is saying much more about us. And, and if I can end it on, 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 on a positive note, uh, I share more in common with you because of our shared values than I do with some Jewish guys that are Hasidic, uh, the, you know, Hasidim, the, the, you know, the really yeah. religious, right? So if you break it down to individual merit, right? I, I appreciate Hamid for the discourse that he brings to the, to the conversation. And therefore, I am closer to him as an individual than I might be to most other Jews, right? I put your individual identity ahead of my group identity. And I actually saw you once talking on some interview where you said, I don't like to call myself Muslim or ex-Muslim. I'm a human being, right? And yes. I exactly agree with that. Yes, I come from a Jewish heritage. Yes, you come from a Muslim heritage. Screw all that. We're two thinkers who share values of freedom, secularism, respect for all, tolerance. Uh, and therefore, you are much more my brother than five million Jews with whom I share a religious heritage. I don't care about that. I actually care about your shared values with me. And if everybody were to think like that, then I think the, a lot of the problems would be resolved. Is Allah is Allah That's a model for the uh, for the future, but if we will wait for Allah to approve this, we will have to wait long. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah, uh, 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 Hamid, it has been an absolute pleasure. I know I kept you longer than we expected. I could have probably kept you for another three hours. Stay on the line, guys. If you enjoyed this, please share it. We need to support voices like uh, Hamid's. He's doing important work. Please spread his message, Hamid. Thank you so much. Is there anything, by the way, before we end? that you'd like me to promote or maybe you want to mention here that's not yet public that you'd like to let tell people about? No, I just had so much fun talking to you. Oh. I don't need to promote anything. Thank you. Shukran, Habibi. Shukran. Dallak ala al-khat.